Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Ephesians 5, beginning with verse 21. Ephesians 5, verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The reading of God's word. Well, good morning. Thank you, worship team, for leading us into uh, into worship this morning. Uh, thank you for the pastor appreciation and the cards and uh, and for those those the gift certificates. Um, I hope you still appreciate me after this sermon, but. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's pray and ask God's help for, uh, for the next passage here in Ephesians. Father, we thank you for uh, your grace to us, for your mercy and kindness. Thank you for truth, Lord, and how you are truth and you speak truth to us from your word. I pray that you would help me and every one of us to, uh, to hear and receive your truth today, to know uh, what this passage means and what it means for our lives, uh, for those here who are married, uh, help them, equip them uh, to uh, walk worthy uh, before you in that area of their lives, and for those who may uh, someday be married or um, even just come alongside people who are married. Uh, this is a passage we all need to pay attention to, so I pray you'd help us with that now. Uh, in Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, one of rock music's great mysteries involves a song by an artist named Meatloaf. Even if you're not a Meatloaf fan or a rock music fan, you've probably heard the song. It's gotten a lot of play over the last 30 years. came out in the early 90s, I believe. Uh, the song is called, I Would Do Anything for Love, But I Won't Do That. I Would Do Anything for Love, But I Won't Do That. And, and there's a, a part of the song, by the way, this is not endorsing the ministry of Meatloaf, but uh, <laughs> the song is popular. And, and so there's a part of this song, if you've heard it, you know what I mean. There's this part where he sings about all these different things that he would do. 
all these things he would do, and I would do this, and I would do that. He's clearly trying to woo this woman. I would do this for you. I would do that for you. But then at the end of each of these lists, he says, but I won't do that. I won't do that. And the mystery is, what's that? What's the that that he won't do? Uh, If you ask the guy who wrote the song, he says it's obvious. And he's actually been asked about this in interviews. He says, I don't see what the big deal is. It's right there in the song what the that is. Uh, But fans disagree. And you can go and you can find online debates about this kind of thing. Uh, They say it isn't so clear. And so they like to debate with each other what that is, the that that he won't do. He won't be faithful or he won't do this or he won't do that. There's different ideas. But he never really says in the song what that is. Well, I certainly don't know the answer. No one's ever accused me of being a rock music expert, but I am intrigued by the question. It's a really interesting question, actually. What would we do for love? What would we do? How far are we as Christians, followers of Jesus, how far are we prepared to go for our marriages? And forget all the worldly stuff that Meatloaf sings about. Let's just cut straight to the chase. You heard the scripture reading this morning. Would we be willing to do what God says to do here at the end of Ephesians chapter 5? Would we be willing to do what he says here? Or is this passage in the category of, but I won't do that. I won't do that. Uh, Today's passage is one of the harder passages here in our our study through Ephesians, and I don't mean hard to interpret. It's actually not that hard to interpret. Uh, The hard part is in the application. It's a hard passage to apply, especially in our world today. Uh, last week, let me just kind of put, situate our text in, in the context of Ephesians. Uh, last week, we talked about how uh, Jesus wants us to walk in wisdom, right? So we're in this part where he says, walk in wisdom, verse 15, uh, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And so we talked last week, verses 15 through 21, about how God wants us to walk in wisdom. And then we also said that this walk in wisdom is part of a larger context of really the second half of the book, which is this whole idea that we would walk in a manner that's worthy of our calling. And so God has saved us in Jesus Christ. He's made us part of a a new uh, race of human beings, this new humanity that the first half of the book describes. He's given us a new life. He's now preparing an inheritance for us in heaven. So in response to all that, God says, walk in a manner that is worthy of this calling. Live your life now so that it fits the new life that God is giving you in and through Jesus. And, and this walking in wisdom, which we looked at last week, is part of that. And he actually tells us three different things to walk in. Remember, we're told to walk in love, the beginning of chapter four. We're told to walk in the light. I think it was verse eight. And then we're told to walk in wisdom. And those are all part of this worthy, worthy calling. After that, uh, Paul now shifts. He takes this idea of walking in wisdom specifically and really just walking in love, walking in light, all of it together. He kind of bundles them and he's going to apply them now to the very real world of our relationships. He's actually going to talk about a series of relationships, but the one he tackles first is marriage. And so he tells us, so where does this passage fit today? It doesn't come out of the blue. This is part of what it looks like to walk in a manner that's worthy of our calling in marriage. That's how this fits. And so if you are married, and, and many of us listening online and, and, and here today, are, that fits us. So if you're married, or if you think you might be married someday, or if you care about somebody who's married, you know, maybe it's your adult children or your friends or something like that, uh, you care about them and you want to help them with their marriages, this is an important passage. Right? We, we do need to pay attention to this one. We need to pay attention because this is one of the Bible's key texts on how God wants us to do marriage. 
know, people like to talk about doing life together. It's kind of this popular phrase. Well, let's, uh, this passage talks about doing marriage together. Here's one of the, it's not the only one, but it's one of the key texts on how to do marriage. And here's what God tells us about it. He tells us uh, that a walking in a manner worthy of our calling in our marriage means embracing humility. Embracing humility in our marriages. That's what God calls us to do. And so we're going to go through the verses we heard a few minutes ago. I'm going to try to explain the most important parts of it. We won't hit every single detail, but we'll hit most of it. And as we go through these, I want to look with you at three ways to live out humility in our marriages. And they actually break down quite nicely in terms of an outline. You can see this on the one that's printed in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along. Uh, We will talk about one for wives, one for husbands, and one for both. So wives, husbands, and both. That's our outline this morning. So uh, let's, let's get into the text. Let's take a look. So we're actually going to start with the last one I mentioned. We're going to start with the one that's for both, uh, because that's where uh, Paul's going to start. So we're going to start with both wives and husbands. Applies to both equally. And, and what we start with is this idea of mutual submission. And so for husbands and wives both, marital humility equals mutual submission. We are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Uh, This is what it says in verse 21. So uh, you might have uh, noticed we we started with verse 21. And it's a little awkward to read in English because the English Standard Version, which we usually read from here, uh, kind of starts a new sentence at verse 22. But in Greek, it's actually the same sentence. Uh, verse 21, there's no period in Greek. Uh, there might be a comma in many, some of the Greek texts, but it, it just launches right into uh, th- this idea in verse 22. In fact, to get the beginning of the sentence, you actually have to go back to verse 18. So I'm actually going to start. Let me take you back to verse 18. So if you've got your Bible open, you can see this. Uh, verse 18 says, uh, that, that's where the main command here starts. It says, do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. Talked about that last week. But be filled with the Spirit. And so that's the big command that's going to actually spill over even to our text today about marriage. Be filled with the Spirit. And then, so he gives that command, verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. And then he he describes what being filled with the Spirit looks like. And we talked about this at the end of last week's sermon, verse 19. It, it, It looks like addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always, for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, I bundled that all together and called it worship. Being filled with the Holy Spirit uh, means worshiping together, worshiping in private. That is how uh, we enter into the Spirit and how the Spirit uh, ma- manifests through us. We might put it that way. So worship, but it's not just worship, verse 21. It's also submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so submission is, is part of, of living a spirit-filled life as well, being willing to humble ourselves before other people, right? And so you have the general statement about submission in verse 21. But then look what, where Paul's going to go. He's going to apply that directly to marriage. That's the one he goes to first. What is, uh, I think, biblically the, the base relationship, the core relationship of human society. He goes uh, to marriage. And so what that means is that Verse 21 is going to give us the guiding principle for our discussion about marriage this morning. It starts with verse 21. I know a lot of our Bibles put a new heading and act like we've moved on to another subject, but it's actually verse 21 is the guiding principle that introduces everything you read in verses 22 through 33. Uh, We are supposed to, what do husbands and wives do? We are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
And that takes humility. He doesn't use the word humility there. He did use it earlier in the book a couple of times, but, but it's what he's talking about. It requires uh, humility to submit to another person. And so that's why I say it is uh, the, the guiding principle here. It all comes down to, uh, it, it comes down to and starts with, really begins with a willingness to put the other person ahead of ourselves. That's his introductory remark on marriage. So uh, what does that mean? Can, it, can we flesh this out a little bit more? Uh, I find myself asking you do too. What does mutual submission look like? And it's a short verse, but the answer is right there in verse 21. I see four characteristics. Let me just, uh, I'm going to hit these real quick so we can get on to the, the specifics. But uh, here, here's when we talk, when I'm going to use this term, mutual submission, keep these four words in your minds because these four words are going to influence how we, we think about this. Uh, the first is that it is reciprocal. Uh, submit to one another. It, it's reciprocal. And so it applies to both, to both husbands and wives. And, and we'll look at the specifics. We'll flesh it out for wives and then for husbands as we get into it. But as it's introduced as a concept, it is reciprocal. Second, uh, mutual submission is also voluntary, uh, not optional. I don't mean optional. Optional, you know, God commands it. So it's not optional, but it's voluntary. And what I mean by that is, we do not get to demand it from the other person, right? And so hear that on the front end of this sermon and, and make, remember it when you go home. Uh, we do not get to demand, you know, you need to be more humble. Uh, don't, don't go there. That, that this is, it is voluntary. And this actually comes from the nature of the word uh, that Paul uses, just a definition of, of this, the word he uses here for submit. It's a word that means to, to choose to voluntarily submit oneself. Uh, to another person's uh, authority or another person's um, desires or will. So it's reciprocal, it's voluntary. Third, uh, mutual submission happens on the basis of equality. It's real important as we understand this passage. And, and it's one of the ones the world just doesn't get. You know, you try to explain this to someone who, who's not a believer, uh, and they, they think we're making a claim that we're not making. This has nothing to do uh, with one person being superior or inferior, more important or less important. It is nothing of the kind. Uh, husband and wife are equal before God. Right? They are created equal. They are equally in his image. They are equally valuable in his eyes. Uh, the first married couple, Eve, is taken from uh, Adam's side. I always like to say that to, to couples I do premarital counseling with. Uh, not from his head, uh, not from his foot, but, but from his side. That's, uh, that's God's way of showing this equality, one of his many ways of showing this equality. And so this submission we're talking about is between two equals. And then fourth mutual submission is Christ-centered. Sometimes we skip that one with this text. The reason is Jesus. Jesus is our motivation for all of this. We submit to one another, what does he say? Out of reverence for Christ. We, we do it for him because he tells us so and because we love him. And when we, if we, you love me, you'll keep my commandments, he says. So, so it's Christ-centered. Everything we say about husbands and wives today. It's not some external thing being imposed on us. It's something that emanates, rises up from our love for Christ and our desire to do what he tells us to do. And so that's the, the first part here, the one for both, uh, for both husband and wife, uh, mutual submission uh, is, is uh, marital humility, humility in marriage is mutual submission. 
Now let's look at how Paul takes this principle, humility manifests through mutual, uh, mutual submission. Let's look at how he applies it to each of them separately, because that's actually where the bulk of our text is this morning. He breaks it out, and we're going to follow his lead. We'll do wives first, because that's where Paul goes next. And so for wives, uh, marital humility means, I'm going to use the word uh, intentional respect. That's the phrase I want to use, intentional respect. A wife lives out humility in her marriage by choosing uh, to respect her husband. So we're not just talking about the respect he earns, but it's actually a volitional choice. Uh, She makes the choice to respect her husband. That's why I'm, I'm adding the word intentional. And that's, that's the application Paul makes. He takes the principle from verse 21, and then he applies it to wives in verses 22 through 24. So let me read them again so they're in our minds. Uh, he says, uh, So submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ... So also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So the key to understanding that little paragraph is this word submit, to understand what it does and doesn't mean. And uh, the first thing we need to say about it is that this is the same word we just talked about in the first point. So it's the same word we talked about in verse 21. It's actually literally the same word uh, in, in, uh, in Greek. So in verse 22, it's re- uh, in, in your English translation, it's repeated. So you have verse 21, submitting to one another. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands. But you might have noticed I dropped that second submit, and I did it on purpose because in Greek, it's not there. Uh, in Greek, uh, and you can probably do this in English as well, but, but in Greek, it's even easier because of the way the land- language is structured. But basically, verse 22 just takes its verbal idea from the last time a verb was used. So there's no verb actually in verse 22, which means you reach back and you grab your verbal idea from the previous verse. And so he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now I'm going to drill down wives to your husbands, he says. Wives to your husbands as to the Lord. And so it's the same verb as the one we just talked about when we talked about with verse 21, which means the things we just said about mutual submission are going to apply here. Right? This is our control on this text. Uh, and so the submission we're talking about, a wife offering her husband, is voluntary, not demanded or coerced. It's, it's voluntary. Remember, we talked about that. Uh, she offers it as to an equal. Right? So there's no sense in which he's more important or better or anything of the kind. Uh, she offers uh, submission as to an equal. And what that does, uh, quite frankly, it, it clarifies and it prevents us from abusing this, this passage. This is, because this passage has been used. Some of you would be tuned into that. This passage has been used uh, through the centuries to, to, in, an, in an abusive and in a wrong-headed way. Uh, but this passage absolutely does not mean that a husband should control or dominate his wife. Uh, in fact, we'll see in a few minutes, it means exactly the opposite. And so any husband who would look to this passage and, and say, well, here's the merit. I get, I get what I want. You need to do what I say. Uh, a, a man who would make that case is completely misinterpreting this passage. Like, he's not just a little off. He's way out in left field in terms of how to under the, understand this passage. Uh, he doesn't just need a, a correction to his thinking. He needs to repent, quite honestly, if we would ever use this passage to, to dominate uh, the, the gift of a wife that the Lord has given to us. And so, and so that, uh, the, the, the syntax is the technical name. The, the, uh, the, the structure of the sentences in this passage keeps us from abusing this passage. 
At the same time, there is something specifically here for wives, right? So we're talking about this mutual submission, and we'll get to the guy's part in a little while. But, but as he talks to wives here, he does pull in that word submit. So the principle submit is going to apply to husbands when we think about humility, but he actually won't use the word submit when he talks about husbands. He's going to use a, a different word. And so we have to think through what's, what's here specifically for wives then? And this is where I'm using the word respect. And the reason I'm using the word respect is that Paul uses the word respect. I'm I'm, I'm hewing closely to the passage here. Uh, At the end of this passage, so look at your Bible, at the end of it, verse 33, he summarizes this long section about marriage, and then he's going to move on to family. He's going to talk about children and parents, which we'll do next week. And so verse 33, he summarizes what he's just said to both husbands and wives, and he says, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself. So we'll get to the husbands in a minute. And the wife, summing it up now, summing up verses 22 through 24, the wife must respect her husband. He does not go back to the word submit, which he'd allowed to carry over from verse 21. Now he goes to a different word, respect, which has different connotations and different ideas. And so... uh, and so to, which is why I'm using that word respect. And it's this idea of, of honoring, trusting. We'll actually get to these in just a moment. But for her to submit, what does it look like to submit? It means to respect him. That's what verse 33 tells us. And so um, I would say, in, think in terms of respect, intentional, willing respect. Now, how does that play out? What does that look like? What does it mean for a wife to uh, respect her husband, uh, according to this text? And I want to point to three things, three things that I see here. Uh, the first one is uh, trust, all right? So this is, some of this comes from these two verses. Some of it comes from just my wider understanding of, how the, of what the scriptures teach on this. But a lot of it's right here from this text. Uh, it talks about trust, trusting. Respecting her husband means choosing to trust his leadership specifically. That's the part that comes from this Ephesians text, his leadership in the home. Uh, you see it in verses 23 and 24. And so Paul talks about Christ being the head of the church. And so what does the church do? The church trusts the leadership of Jesus, right? So when, when, the, uh, you know, when I, I do my part to try to lead the church or the elders and I do, we're not constantly kind of going back to Jesus. Are you sure? Right? Did you really mean this? You said about marriage or this? You meant about the Great Commission? You know, no, we simply trust his leadership. He's the head of his church. And what Paul does is he takes that structure, the Lord Christ is the head of his body, the church, and he takes it and he extends it to marriage. And he says the husband is the head of that home. And so a wife is to trust, what he's saying in those two verses, trust her husband's leadership in the home because God has appointed him to be the head of, of that home. That's what it means when it says he's the head of his wife. It doesn't mean he's her source. Uh, it doesn't mean that he's in charge of her. It doesn't mean uh, that he's better than her. I guess we've already mentioned that one. Uh, it means he has been delegated by God the responsibility for that home. Now, this does not mean that the husband makes all the decisions. Far from it. <laughs> As Mr. T used to say, I pity the fool. Right? I pity the fool who thinks he's smart enough to, to make all the decisions that a house needs to make. Uh, Ecclesiastes 4.12 says two are better than one. Right? It's biblical wisdom. Two are better than one, and that includes in your marriage. In fact, it, it, I like to think of that as a marriage passage. Two are better than one. That includes decision-making. And, and so wise couples are going to pull their resources, pull their experiences, pull their, their shared wisdom, and, and make better decisions together. Not just twice as good, but three or four times as good because they're combining what God's done them. 
Uh, that's where that old term, we don't use it so much anymore. Remember that old term, helpmate or helpmeet, I think is how the King James Version puts it. That's the whole idea, guys. God's given us a wife to help us, right? So, 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 so it doesn't mean he he's, gets to be the boss of everything or he makes all the decisions, but somebody has to take the lead. That's really what that's about. It's about somebody being responsible. And if you think about it, it really is just how the world works. It's how almost everything works. Right? It's how ever, I can't, I, I'm having a hard time finding examples where it doesn't work this way, where there's some kind of authority structure in place. Uh, it's how governments work. Right? If there's no authority structure, it's called anarchy. Uh, it's how schools work, right? We kind of think of the American school system as kind of a, a democratizing sort of effect it's supposed to have. And yet schools are highly structured, right? With, you know, you get your students and your teachers and your administration and, and you know, all the way up the, the, the chain of command there. It's how schools work. It's how churches work. Uh, it's how businesses work. You ever, you know, every once in a while, some business will be in the news because they've got a completely flat structure and then they disappear from the news because it won't work. <laughs> you know, it's just how the world works. And that carries over in God's created universe to marriage. It's how marriages work. Someone has to be responsible. Somebody has to take the lead. And if somebody doesn't take the lead, somebody will take the lead. It's the nature of human relationships. It's just the very nature of it. And so what this passage is telling us, it's not throwing out the idea of equality in any sense. What this passage is simply saying is that in a Christian marriage, the Bible says that God has appointed that somebody to be the husband. He's the one who's responsible to lead. And so what's his wife's part? His wife's part is to trust or to, to follow uh, his, his leadership. And so trust, I think, is a big part of it. Uh, second, another word we could use is the word honor. I think that's a big part of this one. I, I really do. Uh, honor her husband. And, um, you know, I, I've, I've said this when I've preached on this subject before. It's not in my notes, but let me say it here. I am not a woman, and so I, I really do urge, whenever I talk on this subject, uh, I urge women to, to get together on this issue, because you can help each other figure this out better than I can. But I'm doing my job, which is opening up the word to you. B- but I do think honor is a part of it. Now, I guess I can say this as a man. I appreciate my wife does this. Uh, w- women, wives, I would encourage you to be your husband's biggest fan. I think that's part of this. Build him up. You know, the world's going to tear him down. You build him up. Build him up before your, your kids, you know, your children. Your children should not hear you saying negative things about your husband. That is not the place for that. Uh, build him up in front of your friends. Now, I get it. You know, you need a, a couple of heart friends who you can share the struggles with. He's not perfect. Uh, so, so that's fine. I'm not saying you can't, you know, you have to bottle everything up inside. It's good and healthy to have a couple of friends that you can share the hard things with, but your whole small group doesn't need to know, you know, what a jerk he was two nights ago or, or whatever it was. It, it's build him up, right? Build him up in the normal course of your conversations at home, at work, in church, uh, wherever it might be. Uh, honor your husband. Uh, a third one, the third one that I, I see here in this text involves uh, sacrifice. Sacrifice. Uh, sometimes, heeding these words will mean giving up what you want and deferring. You might even write down the word deferral if you're, if you're a note taker. Sacrifice or deferring. Deferring instead to what your husband wants. Not always. Not always. Like I said, we're going to get to his part in a minute. But, but sometimes... This principle does involve deferring to your husband. And where I see that here in this text is in verse 24. 
a verse that I think is maybe the hardest one in here, because it, it says wives should submit in everything to their husbands. You're like, everything? What, is, what does that mean? And I was pondering this week, what does he mean when he says a wife should submit in everything to her husband? And, and it occurred to me, it, it cannot mean that she always lets him get his way. Because that would make him disobedient on his part. You'll, you'll see when we get there, right? And so uh, it, it does not mean that he always gets what he wants all the time. That, that, would, uh, it would, under, that would underline undermine both the mutual part and the loving part that he's supposed to do. And so what does it mean? Why does he say every? Well, I think what he means is that he's talking about every category or every area of life, not just the easy ones. So it's very easy to, you know, some things are very easy to to defer to your husband, but then the the other ones are hard. And the temptation would be, well, I'm going to defer to you on the ones I want to defer to you, and I'm not going to defer to you on the ones I don't. You know, I'm going to cling to those and and always get my own way over here on these because they're mine. Uh, But uh, I think that's what the end everything is talking about. It's, it's, It's not just the easy ones, it's all of them. Because sometimes it's easy, right? Sometimes it's easy to submit, but then sometimes it's not. I just thought I'd give a couple of illustrations, if you don't mind uh, sharing from our own life here. Um, Laura and I decided, I got her permission on all these. Uh, we decided to get a new snowblower. Laura and I decided to get a new snowblower. Uh, the one we've had, uh, actually just a couple weeks ago, bought it just uh, here in town a couple weeks ago. Um, the one we had was too small, it was kind of getting broken down, wasn't working so well anymore. It really couldn't handle, it was too small for our driveway. If we got more than four inches, it was useless. And so we'd have to go out there and shovel and my last shoveler moved away. And so uh, our, <laughs> our youngest uh, graduated and is off at college now. And so I said, we need a new snowblower. A- and not just a new one, but a bigger one. Right? I kind of channeled my inner tool man, Tim, Tim the tool man Taylor here, from, for those who remember that show. Oh, I want a big snowblower. And, uh, and not just bigger, but, but electric. I want an electric start. I am tired of standing out there in January and throwing out my arm, and, and I want one where I'm just going to be able to give it one little nice tug, and it's going to start right up because it's plugged into the wall. That's what I want. And Laura said, sure. Have at it. Get whatever you think we need. That's, that's perfectly fine. That was a very easy one for her to defer to me on because she doesn't care. <laughs> she, she, she might use it. I don't know. I mean, I tried to get one she could if she wanted to, but... She's probably not going to do it very much, and she's probably tired of me complaining every winter about how small the other one was. So it's kind of win-win, right? That's an easy one. I need a new snowblower. Have at it, right? That's an easy one. But we've also faced hard ones, and you faced hard. Every couple's got their own stories. We've all got our own stories. It made me think of one that was uh, harder for us, and it actually came in the first year of our marriage, so 27 years ago. Uh, But it was a tough one. Um, Our car broke down. And it was actually Laura's car. She had bought it before we'd gotten married, so it was really technically her car, and we just had the one. And so, um, so it broke down, and it was one of those deals where it broke down, and it was going to cost more to fix it than the car was worth. You, know, you ever have one of those? And so uh, we, we sold it. Um, actually, I sold it. That's a whole other story. <laughs> that didn't go well either. But... Um, <laughs> But I, we, we sold the car, and we went used car shopping. And, uh, well, I, I won't bore you with all the details, but we ended up getting the car I wanted. We got the one I wanted. I liked it. I thought it was a good deal. I thought it was in our budget. And uh, she didn't really like it. Uh, 
she, and she, she told me at the time, she, she thought it was kind of cramped, and it was. It was a Toyota Tercel, a little bitty, little boxy, late 80s Toyota Tercel. Uh, and uh, so it wasn't particularly attractive. It was kind of this ugly brown. I thought it was a very nice brown, but it was brown. And, um, and it was a stick shift, and neither one of us knew how to drive stick. And, uh, but I said, oh, we'll learn. It'll be easy. And we did learn eventually. Here's the thing. We got the one I wanted. She sacrificed for my sake. She deferred to my, to my judgment. And I was 22, maybe, maybe 23 by then. I forget when it broke. But um, that was very affirming for me. It was actually very healthy for our marriage that, that she let me do that, that she, she honored me that way. And um, I actually reminded Laura of this episode because I did want to get her permission. I don't use family things without permission from my wife or my kids. And so I said, what does she remember of that story? She remembered two things. Uh, first, she reminded me that she didn't just dislike that car, she hated that car. <laughs> so, so if you're uh, questioning whether it was a sacrifice, it really was. She, she really did not like that car. I was, we actually got it rear-ended a few years later, like three or four years later, and I was really heartbroken that we had to get rid of it, and I don't think Laura was. So... Um, <laughs> So she reminded me of that, but then here's the more important thing she reminded me. Uh, she said, it was just a car. It's just a car, right? And think of your own decisions you've had to make like this. One car in a lifetime of cars, and, and it felt like a big deal in the moment, but in the broader context of a lifelong relationship, right? A marriage that in God's design, a sacred relationship meant to last a lifetime. In the context of that, which car we bought did not matter one bit. And the truth of it is, if a couple is living, a husband and wife are living this passage, there's going to be lots of cases where they do this for each other, right? So I've been talking to wives up to this point, and there will be times when, when she will defer to him out of respect. She will choose to respect him uh, by, by deferring to him. And there will be times when he will defer to her because love requires it. And that brings us to the other, the other part of this here. Now let's talk about husbands. And that's where you see the text. Paul spends most of his time. Uh, for husbands, uh, marital humility means sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. A husband lives out humility in his marriage by choosing, right, so he has a choice to make too, by choosing to love his wife sacrificially. It's right there in verse 25. <clears throat> husbands. So he's addressed wives. And, and wives, here's how you live out mutual submission, reaching back to verse 21. Uh, verse 25, husbands, here's how you're going to live out mutual submission. He's actually going to start with a new verb now. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church <clears throat> and gave himself up for her. Now, the first thing we have to say about this is that this is not your average everyday love, is it? This is not your average everyday. This isn't, I love the Chiefs or I love Cheerios. This is love as Christ loved the church. So that's what a husband does with his leadership in his home. This is what he does. He uses it. So he's, he's responsible. He's the leader in his home. What's he going to use that leadership for? He's supposed to use it to love his wife sacrificially and unselfishly. Why? because that's how Jesus loves his bride. That's how Jesus loves his bride. And, and Paul lays it right out here. The model for a husband's love for his wife. I'm like, how am I? Okay, so I'm married now. What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to do this? Where's my model, Paul? Look at how Christ loves the church. 
He gave himself up for the church. He took on pain for the church. He took on the church's sin upon himself. He, he took hardship upon himself for the church. He sacrificed his own body, even to the point of death, for the church. And that becomes the model for how we husbands are to love our wives. And so again, we ask, uh, what does that look like? Let's put some flesh to these bones. Uh, what does it look like to, to love our wives sacrificially? Uh, just for, uh, well, because it's in the text and also for parallelism, let me uh, offer you three answers, three answers to the question. Um, how does a husband love his wife sacrificially? And again, they all come from our text. The first is physically. Uh, love your wife physically in, 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 as you're living out sacrificial love. Uh, we see it in verses 28 and 29. Paul makes it physical. For no one ever hated his own, oh, excuse me, verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, uh, because we are members of his body. And, and then he applies it to the one flesh relationship in verse 31. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so a husband should take care of his wife's physical needs, physical, material, everything that falls into that category, with the same care and attention that he pays to his own needs. Right? Love her the same way he would his own body. Why? Because she is his own body. As far as God is concerned, the two are one flesh. And so uh, he should care for her with as much effort and attention and affection uh, as he does for himself. Uh, which means he should protect her. He should provide for her. He should care for her. He should do things for her. Wherever it's in his power to do, he, his agenda in that marriage relationship should be to, to, to help her. Right? So we talked about her helping him, but that's a two, it's a two-way street, you see. His sacrificial love will be pouring himself out even more than she poured herself out for him. And so, you know, we could multiply examples here, but you know, he works hard all day, or you, you work hard all day. You come home and you're tired and you want to rest. Do you know what? She worked hard all day too. Oh, she was just home with the kids. Are you kidding me? Uh, she, it's hard. She's, she's working hard too or she's at her job or whatever stage of life you happen to be at. And so a husband who's loving his wife sacrificially is going to take that into account. And we're going to work together and get it done so that we can maybe both get some rest in there. So physically, love, love her physically. Uh, a second way that a husband is to sacrificially love his wife is to love her spiritually, spiritually. And again, this comes straight from the way Jesus cares for the church. That's actually his higher agenda. Uh, look at, again at verse 25. I'll, I'll stop reading at the end of verse 27. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why did he do that, Paul? That he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the words so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Someday, Paul reminds us, someday Jesus will present the church, right? The church, his people around the world and down through the ages. He will present the church as a pure and spotless bride before God. And it's an awesome picture in every culture, including ours. It's an awesome picture. Just think of the last wedding you've been to. Right? You, you can appreciate the power of that image. It's always a big moment when the bride appears at the, at the back of the, the church or the venue, whatever it is. It's always a big moment. In fact, I'll tell you, it's actually my favorite moment 
uh, as a pastor, maybe because I get such a great view, but uh, it, 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 she's right there, and she's not there, and then she's there. And it's such a powerful moment because she's, you know, in her white dress and she just looks great. And, and her groom is just glowing. He's so excited. Uh, and, and it's just this powerful, powerful moment. And that's the picture that's used here, the presentation of a bride in all of her glorious beauty. That's the picture that he uses. But the reason he uses it is to give a very sobering kind of message to us who, who are husbands, to we who are husbands, because the, the, the sobering part is, that's what we're supposed to do. That's our job. One of a husband's main jobs is to help his bride, his wife, get ready for eternity. Just like Jesus is doing for his bride. That's the picture Paul's going to bring in here. And so one of our biggest jobs, men, is to make sure our, our wife is growing spiritually in this life so that she's ready Right now, and I'm not saying we're solely responsible for her. She's an autonomous being. She's responsible before God for herself. But God has given her a husband who's investing in her and helping her grow spiritually. So she's ready to stand someday before Jesus. Remember when I said someone has to lead? This is what we're leading toward. This is what we're leading toward. Which means a few things here. Uh, it means, first of all, that we have to take care of our own spiritual lives, guys. <laughs> because you can't pump water from a dry well. And so we have to keep our own wells full, right? We need to do that for ourselves and our own spiritual health. But then on top of that, we bear the extra responsibility of doing it for her sake. And if we have children, doing it for their sake. And so we have to keep our own spiritual life. This is one of my big motivations, and I hope for you too, tending to our own spiritual life. It means we have to take the lead in spiritual matters, uh, we do not get to delegate this one. All right, okay, honey, I'll pick out the snowblower. You take care of the God stuff. Uh, we don't get to do that. Uh, God actually assigns to us step, step forward, taking the lead with the God stuff. If, if leadership in a Christian home means anything, it means that. And then it, it does mean, and, and just here's where you really see the sacrificial part come out. Uh, it means doing everything we can to help her to grow spiritually, making sure she's got what she needs. And so... Uh, Go to church with your wife. And that's an easy one. You're here. Keep doing that. Or if you're not married yet, someday when you do get married, uh, go to church with your wife. Such a big thing. Maybe go to a small group together. Pray with her. Pray for her. Clear her schedule so she can, you know, maybe she'd like to go to one of the women's Bible studies. Make sure she's able to do that. If you have younger children, make sure you're watching them or someone else is watching them so she can do that. Uh, shake some money free from your budget so she can go to a conference or whatever else it is that feeds her that way. Do whatever you can, whatever's in your power to do to help your wife grow spiritually. That's a big part of, of sacrificial love for us. And then the third way a, a husband loves his wife sacrificially uh, is, that, is that he loves her unconditionally. He should love her unconditionally. And I, I think this one would apply to both, but in the text I see the emphasis more on us husbands. Uh, love her unconditionally because that's how Jesus loves us. And, and the, model, the love of Christ for his bride is the model here. And Christ's love for his bride, his love for the church, is unconditional. He loves us even when we're unlovable. That's what it says in Romans 5. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, rebels shaking our fists in his face, Christ died for us. And he doesn't stop loving us when we, when we sin or when we stumble. He, he, he loves us unconditionally. And that's how we're supposed to love our wives. We don't get to sit back on this one and say, you go first. 
I'll start loving you when you start respecting me. We do not get to do that. Instead, this is part of the leadership piece. We say, I'll go first. And I hope you'll come with me. It'll be even better if you do. But even if you don't, out of reverence for Christ, I'm going to love you anyway. And so it's physical, it's spiritual, it's unconditional. That's what sacrificial love for our wives looks like. About uh, eight years ago, it was in 2013, a man named Seth Adam Smith wrote a blog post. Which is, he's not a, I don't think he's famous or anything. But he, wrote a, he maintained a personal blog, and he wrote a post called Marriage Isn't For You. And I actually have shared this in the past. I shared it in a sermon on marriage in 2018, back in 2018. And so if this sounds familiar, it might be from that sermon. But, uh, and, and I wouldn't normally share something this soon again, uh, but it's kind of like the Lord of the Rings movies. Some things are so good, you got to go back to them sooner. And so um, this post is like that. And I just, I just, I was puzzling, how do I wrap this sermon up? And I, I thought of that blog again. And so I'm just going to read this to you. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to read about half of it. You can look it up online. Marriage isn't for you. Look for that in a search engine. You'll find it. But uh, here's the first half of what Smith wrote. I think it's so insightful. He says, having been married only a year and a half, I've recently come to the conclusion that marriage isn't for me. Now, before you start making assumptions, keep reading. I met my wife in high school when we were 15. We were friends for 10 years until we decided we no longer wanted to be just friends. I strongly recommend, he says, that best friends fall in love. Good times will be had by all. Nevertheless, falling in love with my best friend did not prevent me from having certain fears and anxieties about getting married. The nearer Kim and I approached the decision to marry, the more I was filled with a paralyzing fear. Was I ready? Was I making the right choice? Was Kim the right person to marry? Would she make me happy? Then one fateful night, I shared these thoughts and concerns with my dad. Perhaps each of us have moments in our lives. Maybe I like this story because the dad's the hero. Uh, He says, perhaps each of us have moments in our lives when it feels like uh, time slows down or the air becomes still and everything around us seems to draw in, marking that moment as one we will never forget. My dad giving his response was such a moment for me. With a knowing smile, he said, Seth, you're being totally selfish. So I'm going to make this really simple. Marriage isn't for you. You don't marry to make yourself happy. You marry to make someone else happy. More than that, he went on, you're marrying for a family. Not just for the in-laws and all of that, but for your future children. Who do you want to help? Who do you want to help you raise them? Who do you want to influence them? No, marriage isn't for you. It's not about you. Marriage is about the person you marry. That pretty much sums up this passage. That's why I like it so much. It sums up what we've said today. Husbands, wives, your marriage is not about you. Your marriage is about the person you married. Whereas God said through Paul, it's about submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we thank you for this passage. Uh, It is challenging, uh, but it is life-giving. The the longer I do this myself and and walk alongside others, uh, the clearer it becomes to me that your way is the right way. And it's another one of those where it may or may not seem right to us on our own eyes, but it's right. And so we thank you for it. I want to pray, Lord, that you would help us 
to embrace humility in our marriages. For those who are not married now, but maybe someday if, if, if they do, when they do, uh, that you would help them to do that as well. Uh, we would repent, Lord, of where we have failed to do this. Forgive us for where we have hurt, where we as husbands have, have failed to love our wives sacrificially, where we as wives have failed to honor and respect our husbands. Uh, forgive us for that and help us to move forward in doing so in the way that you've called us to do. Uh, help us, Lord, to look to you and to conduct ourselves in our marriages the way you are to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.